Hello, and welcome to For Starters, from All For One Productions in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the podcast that brings you audio appetizers from time-tested tales for the whole family. Our theater company prepares a full season of values-rich, thought-provoking, family-friendly fare for a local audience. But not every great story makes a great stage play, and there are more delicious tales to taste than we have time to cook. So we've created this podcast in order to expand our menu, introducing a larger audience to a wider array of literary offerings. Our actors will read you a chapter or two, tell you a bit about the whole work, and point you to where you can read, watch, or listen to the rest of the story. We hope you'll enjoy what you hear and that it makes you hungry for more. This podcast is produced with the support of the Community Foundation of Greater Fort Wayne. Welcome to episode one of the For Starters podcast. This week's appetizer is chapter one of Little Women, a semi-autobiographical novel by American author Louisa May Alcott. Written in 1868, this story of four sisters whose father is an army chaplain during the Civil War was an immediate success, to the surprise of both Alcott and her publisher. The gentle story of Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, their experiences of school and work, home and travel, disappointment and romance, has remained a favorite of young women for 150 years. Little Women has been widely adapted for the stage and film, most recently appearing on the big screen in late 2019. Our reading is nearly word for word. However, in a few instances, words have been updated for modern ears. And although the narrator generally identifies who's speaking, we've removed a number of said Joe or said Megs where we felt it was clear enough. Stay with us after the reading for our suggestions of the best published versions to read, listen to, or watch. Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents, rumbled Joe, lying on the rug. It's so dreadful to be poor, sighed Meg, looking down at her old dress. I don't think it's fair for some girls to have plenty of pretty things, and other girls have nothing at all added little Amy, with an injured sniff. We've got father and mother, and each other, said Beth contentedly from her corner. The four young faces on which the firelight shone brightened at the cheerful words, but darkened again as Joe said sadly, We haven't got father, and shall not have him for a long time. She didn't say perhaps never, but each silently added it thinking of father far away, where the fighting was. Nobody spoke for a minute. Then Meg said in an altered tone, You know the reason mother proposed not having any presents this Christmas was because it is going to be a hard winter for everyone, and she thinks we ought not to spend money for pleasure when our men are suffering so in the army. We can't do much, but we can make our little sacrifices and ought to do it gladly, but I'm afraid I don't. And Meg shook her head as she thought regretfully of all the pretty things she wanted. But I don't think the little we should spend would do any good. We've each got a dollar, and the army wouldn't be much helped by our giving that. I agree not to expect anything from mother or you, but I do want to buy Undine and Sintram for myself. I've wanted it so long, said Joe, who was a bookworm. I plan to spend mine on new music, said Beth, with a little sigh, which no one heard but the hearth brush and kettle holder. I shall get a nice box of Faber's drawing pencils. 
I really need them, said Amy decidedly. Mother didn't say anything about our money, and she won't wish us to give up everything. Let's each buy what we want and have a little fun. I'm sure we work hard enough to earn it, cried Joe, examining the heels of her shoes in a gentlemanly manner. I know I do. Teaching those tiresome children nearly all day when I'm longing to enjoy myself at home, began Meg in the complaining tone again. You don't have half such a hard time as I do. How would you like to be shut up for hours with a nervous, fussy old lady who keeps you trotting, is never satisfied, and worries you till you're ready to fly out the window or cry? It's naughty to fret, but I do think washing dishes and keeping things tidy is the worst work in the world. It makes me cross, and my hands get so stiff I can't practice well at all. And Beth looked at her rough hands with a sigh that anyone could hear that time. I don't believe any of you suffer as I do, for you don't have to go to school with impertinent girls who plague you if you don't know your lessons and laugh at your dresses and label your father if he isn't rich and insult you when your nose isn't nice. <laughs> if you mean libel, I'd say so, and not talk about labels as if Papa was a pickle bottle. I know what I mean, and you needn't be satirical about it. It's proper to use good words and improve your vocabulary. Don't peck at one another, children. Don't you wish we had the money Papa lost when we were little, Joe? Dear me, how happy and good we'd be if we had no worries, said Meg, who could remember better times. You said the other day that you thought we were a deal happier than the King children, for they were fighting and fretting all the time, in spite of their money. So I did, Beth. Well, I think we are, for though we do have to work, we make fun of ourselves, and are a pretty jolly set, as Joe would say. Joe does use such slang words, observed Amy with a reproving look at the long figure stretched on the rug. Joe immediately sat up, put her hands in her pockets, and began to whistle. <gasps> Don't, Joe! It's so boyish! That's why I do it. I detest rude, unladylike girls. I hate affected niminy-piminy chits. Birds in their little nests agree, sang Beth, the peacemaker, with such a funny face that both sharp voices softened to a laugh, and the pecking ended for that time. Really, girls, you are both to be blamed, said Meg, beginning to lecture in her elder sisterly fashion. You are old enough to leave off boyish tricks and to behave better, Josephine. It didn't matter so much when you were a little girl, but now you are so tall and turn up your hair, you should remember that you are a young lady. I'm not! And if turning up my hair makes me one, I'll wear it in two tails till I'm twenty, cried Joe pulling off her net and shaking down a chestnut mane. I hate to think I've got to grow up and be Miss March and wear long gowns and look as prim as a china aster. It's bad enough to be a girl anyway, when I like boys, games, and work, and manners. I can't get over my disappointment in not being a boy. And it's worse now than ever, for I'm dying to go and fight with Papa and I can only stay home and knit like a pokey old woman. And Joe shook the blue army sock till the needles rattled like castanets 
and her ball bounded across the room. Poor Joe. It's too bad, but it can't be helped. So you must try to be contented with making your name boyish and playing brother to us girls, said Beth stroking the rough head with the hand that all the dishwashing and dusting in the world cannot make ungentle in its touch. As for you, Amy, you are altogether too particular and prim. Your airs are funny now, but you'll grow up an affected little goose if you don't take care. I like your nice manners and refined ways of speaking, when you don't try to be elegant, but your absurd words are as bad as Joe's slang. If Joe is a tomboy and Amy a goose, what am I, please? Asked Beth, ready to share the lecture. You're a dear and nothing else, answered Meg warmly. And no one contradicted her, for the mouse was the pet of the family. As young readers like to know how people look, we will take this moment to give them a little sketch of the four sisters who sat knitting away in the twilight while the December snow fell quietly without, and the fire crackled cheerfully within. It was a comfortable room, though the carpet was faded and the furniture very plain, for a good picture or two hung on the walls, books filled the recesses, chrysanthemums and Christmas roses bloomed in the windows, and a pleasant atmosphere of home peace pervaded it. Margaret, the eldest of the four, was sixteen and very pretty, being plump and fair, with large eyes, plenty of soft brown hair, a sweet mouth, and white hands, of which she was rather vain. Fifteen-year-old Joe was very tall, thin, and brown, and reminded one of a colt, for she never seemed to know what to do with her long limbs, which were very much in her way. She had a decided mouth, a comical nose, and sharp gray eyes, which appeared to see everything, and were by turns fierce, funny, or thoughtful. Her long, thick hair was her one beauty, but it was usually bundled into a net to be out of her way. Round shoulders had Joe, big hands and feet, a flyaway look to her clothes, and the uncomfortable appearance of a girl who was rapidly shooting up into a woman and didn't like it. Elizabeth, or Beth as everyone called her, was a rosy, smooth-haired, bright-eyed girl of thirteen with a shy manner, a timid voice, and a peaceful expression which was seldom disturbed. Her father called her Little Miss Tranquility, and the name suited her excellently for she seemed to live in a happy world of her own, only venturing out to meet the few whom she trusted and loved. Amy, though the youngest, was a most important person, in her own opinion at least, a regular snow maiden, with blue eyes and yellow hair curling on her shoulders, pale and slender, and always carrying herself like a young lady mindful of her manners. What the characters of the four sisters were, we will leave to be found out. The clock struck six, and having swept up the hearth, Beth put a pair of slippers down to warm. Somehow, the sight of the old shoes had a good effect upon the girls, for Mother was coming, and everyone brightened to welcome her. Meg stopped lecturing and lighted the lamp. Amy got out of the easy chair without being asked, 
and Jo forgot how tired she was as she sat up to hold the slippers nearer to the blaze. They're quite worn out. Marmy must have a new pair. I thought I'd get her some with my dollar. No, I shall. I'm the oldest. I'm the man of the family now Papa is away, and I shall provide the slippers, for he told me to take special care of Mother while he was gone. I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's each get her something for Christmas and not get anything for ourselves. That's like you, dear. What will we get? Everyone thought soberly for a minute. Then Meg announced, as if the idea was suggested by the sight of her own pretty hands, I shall give her a nice pair of gloves. Army shoes, best to be had. Some handkerchiefs, all hemmed. I'll get a little bottle of cologne. She likes it, and it won't cost much. So I'll have some left to buy my pencils. How will we give the things? Put them on the table and bring her in and see her open the bundles. Don't you remember how we used to do on our birthdays? I used to be so frightened when it was my turn to sit in the chair with the crown on and see you all come marching round to give the presents with a kiss. I did like the things and the kisses, but it was dreadful to have you sit looking at me while I opened the bundles. Said Beth who was toasting her face and the bread for tea at the same time. Let Marmy think we're getting things for ourselves, and then surprise her. We must go shopping tomorrow afternoon, Meg. There is so much to do about the play for Christmas night, said Jo, marching up and down with her hands behind her back and her nose in the air. I don't mean to act anymore after this time. I'm getting too old for such things, observed Meg who is as much a child as ever about dressing up frolics. You won't stop, I know. As long as you can trail round in a white gown with your hair down and wear gold paper jewelry. You are the best actress we've got, and there'll be an end of everything if you quit the boards. We ought to rehearse tonight. Come here, Amy, and do the fainting scene, for you are as stiff as a poker in that. I can't help it. I never saw anyone faint and I don't choose to make myself all black and blue, tumbling flat as you do. If I can go down easily, I'll drop. If I can't, I shall fall into a chair and be graceful. I don't care if Hugo does come at me with a pistol. Returned Amy, who was not gifted with dramatic power, but was chosen because she was small enough to be borne out shrieking by the villain of the piece. Do it this way. Clasp your hands so and stagger across the room, crying frantically, Rodrigo, save me, save me. And away went Joe with a melodramatic scream, which was truly thrilling. Amy followed, but she poked her hand out stiffly before her and jerked herself along as if she went by machinery, and her ow was more suggestive of pins being run into her than of fear and anguish. Joe gave a despairing groan, and Meg laughed outright, while Beth let her bread burn as she watched the fun with interest. It's no use. Do the best you can when the time comes, and if the audience laughs, don't blame me. Come on, Meg. Then things went smoothly, for Don Pedro defied the world in a speech of two pages without a single break. Hagar, the witch, chanted an awful incantation over her kettle full of simmering toads with weird effect. Rodrigo rent his chains asunder manfully, and Hugo died in agonies of remorse and arsenic with a wild ha-ha. It's the best we've had yet, 
said Meg, as the dead villain sat up and rubbed his elbows. I don't see how you can write and act such splendid things, Joe. You're a regular Shakespeare, exclaimed Beth, who firmly believed that her sisters were gifted with wonderful genius in all things. Not quite. I do think The Witch's Curse, an operatic tragedy, is rather a nice thing, but I'd like to try Macbeth. If only we had a trapdoor for Banquo. I always wanted to do the killing part. Is that a dagger that I see before me? Muttered Joe, rolling her eyes and clutching at the air as she had seen a famous tragedian do. No, it's the toasting fork with Mother's shoe on it instead of the bread. Beth stage struck, cried Meg, and the rehearsal ended in a general burst of laughter. <laughs> Glad to find you so merry, my girls, said a cheery voice at the door, and actors and audience turned to welcome a tall, motherly lady with a can-I-help-you look about her, which was truly delightful. She was not elegantly dressed, but a noble-looking woman and the girls thought the gray cloak and unfashionable bonnet covered the most splendid mother in the world. Well, dearies, how have you got on today? There was so much to do getting the boxes ready to go tomorrow that I didn't come home to dinner. Has anyone called, Beth? How's your cold, Meg? Joe, you look tired to death. Come and kiss me, baby. While making these maternal inquiries, Mrs. Marsh got her wet things off, her warm slippers on, and sitting down in the easy chair, drew Amy to her lap, preparing to enjoy the happiest hour of her busy day. The girls flew about, trying to make things comfortable, each in her own way. Meg arranged the tea table, Joe brought wood and set chairs, dropping, overturning, and clattering everything she touched. Beth trotted to and fro between parlor and kitchen, quiet and busy, while Amy gave directions to everyone as she sat with her hands folded. As they gathered about the table, Mrs. March said with a particularly happy face, I've got a treat for you after supper. A quick, bright smile went round like a streak of sunshine. Beth clapped her hands, regardless of the biscuit she held, and Joe tossed up her napkin, crying, A letter! A letter! Three cheers for father! Yes, a nice long letter. He is well and thinks he shall get through the cold season better than we feared. He sends all sorts of loving wishes for Christmas and an especial message to you girls, said Mrs. March, patting her pocket as if she had got a treasure there. Hurry! And get done. Don't stop to quirk your little finger and simper over your plate, Amy, cried Joe, choking on her tea and dropping her bread butterside down on the carpet in her haste to get at the treat. Beth ate no more, but crept away to sit in her shadowy corner and brood over the delight to come till the others were ready. I think it was so splendid in father to go as chaplain when he was too old to be drafted and not strong enough for a soldier. Don't I wish I could go as a drummer, a vivant, what's its name, or a nurse, so I could be near him and help him. Oh, it must be very disagreeable to sleep in a tent and eat all sorts of bad-tasting things and drink out of a tin mug. Uh, when will he be home, Marmy? Not for many months, dear, unless he is sick. He will stay and do his work faithfully as long as he can 
and we won't ask for him back a minute sooner than he can be spared. Now come and hear the letter. They all drew to the fire. Mother in the big chair with Beth at her feet, Meg and Amy perched on either arm of the chair, and Joe leaning on the back, where no one would see any sign of emotion if the letter should happen to be touching. Very few letters were written in those hard times that were not touching, especially those which father sent home. In this one, little was said of the hardships endured, the dangers faced, or the homesickness conquered. It was a cheerful, hopeful letter, full of lively descriptions of camp life, marches, and military news, and only at the end did the writer's heart overflow with fatherly love and longing for the little girls at home. Give them all of my dear love and a kiss. Tell them I think of them by day, pray for them by night, and find my best comfort in their affection at all times. A year seems very long to wait before I see them, but remind them that while we wait, we may all work so that these hard days need not be wasted. I know they will remember all I said to them, that they will be loving children to you, will do their duty faithfully, fight their bosom enemies bravely, and conquer themselves so beautifully that when I come back to them, I may be fonder and prouder than ever of my little women. Everybody sniffed when they came to that part. Joe wasn't ashamed of the great tear that dropped off the end of her nose, and Amy never minded the rumpling of her curls as she hid her face on her mother's shoulder and sobbed out, I am a selfish girl, but I'll truly try to be better so he mayn't be disappointed in me by and by. We all will. I think too much of my looks and hate to work, but won't any more if I can help it. I'll try and be what he loves to call me, a little woman, and not be rough and wild, but do my duty here instead of wanting to be somewhere else," said Joe, thinking that keeping her temper at home was a much harder task than facing a rebel or two down south. Beth said nothing, but wiped away her tears with the blue army sock and began to knit with all her might, losing no time in doing the duty that lay nearest her, while she resolved in her quiet little soul to be all that father hoped to find her when the year brought round the happy coming home. Mrs. March broke the silence that followed Joe's words by saying in her cheery voice, Do you remember how you used to play Pilgrim's Progress when you were little things? Nothing delighted you more than to have me tie my peace bags on your backs for burdens, give you hats and sticks and rolls of paper, and let you travel through the house from the cellar, which was the city of destruction, up, up to the housetop, where you had all the lovely things you could collect to make a celestial city. What fun it was, especially going by the lions, fighting Apollyon, and passing through the valley where the hobgoblins were. I liked the place where the bundles fell off and tumbled downstairs. I don't remember much about it, except I was afraid of the cellar and the dark entry, and I always liked the cake and milk we had at the top. If I wasn't too old for such things, I'd rather like to play it over again, said Amy, who began to talk of renouncing childish things at the mature age of twelve. We never are too old for this, my dear. 
because it is a play we are playing all the time, in one way or another. Our burdens are here, our road is before us, and the longing for goodness and happiness is the guide that leads us through many troubles and mistakes to the peace which is a true celestial city. Now, my little pilgrims, suppose you begin again, not in play, but in earnest, and see how far on you can get before Father comes home. Really, Mother? Where are our bundles? asked Amy, who was a very literal young lady. Each of you told what your burden was just now, except Beth. I rather think she hasn't got any. Yes, I have. Mine is dishes and dusters and envying girls with nice pianos and being afraid of people. Beth's bundle was such a funny one that everybody wanted to laugh, but nobody did, for it would have hurt her feelings very much. Let us do it. It is only another name for trying to be good, and the story may help us, for though we do want to be good, it's hard work, and we forget and don't do our best. We were in the slew of despond tonight, and Mother came and pulled us out as help did in the book. We ought to have our rule of directions, like Christian. What should we do about that? Asked Joe, delighted with the fancy which lent a little romance to the very dull task of doing her duty. Look under your pillows Christmas morning, and you'll find your guidebook. They talked over the new plan while old Hannah cleared the table. Then out came the four little work baskets, and the needles flew as the girls made sheets for Aunt March. It was uninteresting sewing, but tonight no one grumbled. They adopted Joe's plan of dividing the long seams into four parts and calling the quarters Europe, Asia, Africa, and America, and in that way got on capitally especially when they talked about the different countries as they stitched their way through them. In this episode of For Starters, you heard Rachel Walker as Joe, Abby Fenning as Meg, Josette Wilhelm as Beth, Megan Spieth as Amy, Lorraine Knox as Marmee, and Abby Diller as the narrator. Hey, thanks for joining us. I'm Stacy Custer, the executive director of All for One Productions. And I'm Lauren Nichols, All for One's artistic director. Yes, and we are so glad that you've uh, joined us today to hear Little Women and um, kind of our opinion about this story yes. and why we think it is so fantastic. Um, I was telling Lauren just a little bit earlier, this is the first book that I can remember my mom reading to me out loud. I was younger than eight, because we were still in the first house that I can remember living in. That's and, so special. Yeah, and I remember we would read it together before bed at night. She would read it out loud, and um, it had a yellow cover. <laughs> and uh, it's really the first story I can remember us sharing. Wow. Yeah. My mom, of course, always bought me so many classics, and I still have the hardcover Illustrated Junior Classics Edition yeah. that she gave me yes. when I was, I was probably 10 or 11. Yeah. When I read it the first time, and I've read it more times than I can count. When we first started talking about a podcast and dramatizing something that was in the public domain, for obvious reasons <laughs> of uh, financial existency, um, we were tossing around um, names of plays, and I said, you know, we wouldn't have to stick to plays. There's so many stories in the world, and... One of the first stories that came to my mind, 
I think it was because there was a brand new movie adaptation that just was released yeah. in um, December maybe of 2019. Yeah. The Little Women would be fun. It has lots of good speaking roles and it would be fun to do. And our original idea was to read the whole thing. <laughs> right. We cut back a little bit <laughs> and we decided uh, let's just do a chapter and give you just a little taste of, of this book and this very special story. Because really what we're hoping is that you will go and pursue the many options you have for exploring this book on your own. We're not really set up to do a full-length dramatization, which would be rather ambitious. But I love the idea of being able to introduce lots of different stories yes. by choosing the, uh, an intriguing taste of each yeah. one. So we have four more stories we do. in this season. We do have four more coming up. This was the first one that we produced. Yeah, so you can stick around for The Scarlet Pimpernel. Yes. Um, that will be our next one. And then uh, The Boxcar Children, then The Enchanted Castle, and then we'll be doing Peter Pan. So um, lots of fun stuff to come. Yes. But this story, it was my first one actually that came to mind as well. Okay. The first one that I thought this would be a great one to start with. Yes. Um, it is probably, if it's not my favorite story, it's like three-way tie for first, <laughs> you know? So um, this story, I've always wanted actually to do this one on stage but have never found really a stage adaptation mm. that I have felt was truly faithful yes. to the story. It's always tricky when you have girls who are growing up. Yes. They start out little, and what do you do? Do you double cast and you've got to have girls that look convincingly alike? Yeah. Um, it's always a challenge in the film versions as well. And sometimes the youngest Amy is played by two different people. Back in the, the 1994 film version, yeah she was played by two different actresses. It's been done on film a lot, hasn't it? Yes, it has. There are seven film adaptations that we know of. Two of them were silent films. This is how long this story has been adapted for film. There were two silent versions, and then the first talking version came out in the late 1930s, and that's the Katherine Hepburn version mm. of the movie that... Uh, Which is actually, a lot I think, a film of the stage play. I'm I think you're certain. right. I think you're right because they use that exact same script mm -hmm. for a late 1940s version. It's the exact same script. They just recast Is it. Is that with June Allison? June Allison and, and, and Elizabeth, uh, Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor. And what, what, what was the other one? The one who played Beth. Oh, Margaret O'Brien. Yes, Margaret yes. O'Brien. Yeah. That was a sweet one. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then um, the 94 version that we've mentioned, another one came out just last year. Yeah. And, and then there have been countless television adaptations. Oh, my goodness. I had not yeah. realized how many until I started looking it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> but, uh, in fact, the BBC did it four different times. But most recently they did one in collaboration with PBS's Masterpiece Theatre, 2015, I think. Um, and I saw that one. It was, at least when I watched it, it was still streaming on Amazon Prime, and it was really well done. I think one of the things that's always important to me as a theater director is finding an adaptation of a work which is faithful to it yes. so that if this is your introduction to the story and you want to read it you're not going to go to the book and go what <laughs> that's not what happens no. um, I, I, I hate that and I've yeah. I've experienced that yes. in the other direction usually 
I've read a book and I loved it, and then they do it on television or film, and I say, what? You've yeah. ruined it. Well, I don't want people to have the opposite experience. We really want people to go and experience the full book in its original form, whether they want to read it or listen to it or watch, or watch it. it. Yeah, and there are lots of audible versions available. I think there's a dozen different unabridged wow. readings of Little Women, and it's about 19 hours long. Wow. That's a good long listen. Yes, it is. Long car trip with the family. <laughs> Got you covered. There you go. <laughs> and if you want to read it, of course, I mean, I think there are a thousand different um, editions. Yeah. One that I found um, that's only a, was been a, out just a few years, the annotated, illustrated Little Women. It's what, three inches thick? At least. Weighs about 10 pounds, yeah. but it has um, side notes that explain every little reference that, even some in that first chapter that people might have gone, I'm not sure what that Yeah, meant. you know what I learned in that first chapter? Joe has a line, I wish I could go and be a drummer, or a Vivon, what's yes. its name? I had no idea what that meant. We actually found out during the reading that uh, the drummer was actually like someone who followed behind selling things, oh. not like drummer drums, drum dum dum, you know. Okay. Um, and the Vivan, whatever, was um, someone else that followed the army. All right, I bet that's and in the marginalia. Yeah, I bet it is. And and this book, uh, if you can get a hold of it, it also is full of beautiful illustrations, source photographs, pictures from all the different movies, all the different illustrated versions. It's just a it's a delicious yeah. book to pick up and, and even just thumb through. So you have yeah. lots of options in yeah. exploring Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Yes. And I hope that you will. Me too, because it really, this story, um, I don't know. You know, there's just something about this story. There is a character in this story that you will identify yes. with. Yes, because those four sisters are really all very different very young different. women. And they have different paths. And they, they have struggles that I think are still relatable yes. today. Universal. But family, yeah. family is such an important mm -hmm. um, through line of that, yeah. of the family whole book. Family and self-discovery mm -hmm. and, and know, a certain amount of self-sacrifice. Yes. Because um, mm -hmm. there, there was a challenging time. Yeah, the and Civil War. Yeah, yes. It was. Yes, and yeah. since we're still living in challenging times, this be a good book to pick up and be inspired by. There you go. I hope you'll join us next time. This production was recorded and engineered by Frosty Pictures with the support of the Community Foundation of Greater Fort Wayne.